Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Nobody Asked for This, a diet culture takedown. I'm Kendra. And I'm Megan. And we are a week and a half into the new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Have you has everyone recovered from the holidays and back into the swing of things? I hope so. I hope so too. Um, you know what I spent my New Year's Day doing? Tell me. I cleaned out not one, not two, but all three of my clothes closets in my apartment. <laughs> now hear wow. me out. So you... you have three closets. Well, let me just hold on. Hold on, everybody. <laughs> I had a walk-in closet in my uh, house in uh, the New River Valley, and I now have live in an apartment built in the like 1950s so every Mm -hmm. closet is very small Mm -hmm. and so i have my clothes spread out among three of them and so you know how when you move into a new place you have to kind of like live in it before you really figure out where you really need things and what makes sense yeah sure so um (laughs) so part of my reasoning for cleaning out my closets was i needed to rearrange them so that now that i know kind of what i really need in which closets are they all three in your bedroom? No. Oh, well, Mm-mm. that's fine. Yeah. I mean, of all are. of it's fine. Oh, oh, that is nice. That's nice. Two of them are. Um, so, and then the third one's, I just took over the guest room closet. So that's there you go. how that goes. Um, I've done that as well in my house. Yeah. You have to sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so now they're all nicely organized. I also did the trick where you turn your hangers around. At the beginning of the year. Okay. I've yes. never done this before, but I think it'll be very helpful to me. Because I Explain always. Explain it. So you turn them around and then at the end of the year, the hangers that have stayed that way, you know you didn't wear that item in the, the whole year. Right. So and if you, you wear the it. item, you put it back. Yeah. You just put it back. As you normally would. You mm-hmm. So right. you can see the things that you haven't worn. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that that will help me emotionally detached from some items of clothing when I go, oh, haven't even touched that in a year. We can just toss right. it regardless of how much I love it. You know what I mean? Do you feel um, emotional attachment to clothes? I guess you do. Yeah, sometimes. Not everything. I mean, you know, not everything. Yeah. But sometimes just things that yeah, I really sure. love, I you too. know, make yeah. me feel good. But yeah. the other reason that I cleaned out my closet was because there are a number of items that I can't wear anymore. And so it was time for them to go away instead of taunt me in my closet. (laughs) Were they too big or too small? Um, Most of them were too small. Okay. Yeah. And how did that make you feel? Because I know personally, if I have been on a diet, which I've been on many, Mm -hmm. and I'm successful quote unquote unquote. successful (laughs) in the first, let's say 12 weeks or so, as we know how diets go, then I feel really great. And I'm like, I'm going to get rid of all these clothes that are too big for me. And it feels powerful. And that power comes from fat phobia in our culture. So I'm curious how it felt for you to get rid of clothes that were too small. So I definitely did that a while, I don't even know when, maybe a year or more ago, where I got rid of a lot of things because they were too big. Mm. And um, yeah, that was that was a bit of a different... I still had some emotional attachment to some things, even though they were... And wanted to keep them in my closet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not get rid of them. But it was a different kind of getting rid of. It, was, it wasn't like a, a failure getting rid of. Again, but like that was an understanding within diet culture that I carry a wrong understanding. Does, you know right. what I'm saying? A belief. A yeah. belief I carry that belief. wasn't, yeah. that I don't carry anymore. Um, this I think would have been more emotional for sure, but I've been, I'd kind of like been prepping myself towards getting rid of these clothes. Mm. And okay, so how'd you do that? I, I kind of started to replace them first Okay. I have, I'm grateful to have the ability to do that. And so right. I would buy, go, okay, well, I, I need some of these items or things I need to have in my closet because of my job or whatever. And so I just would, I replaced them and started wearing those things. So then when the time came to get rid of the others, it wasn't like, I don't have any clothes left. 
in right. my closet. You know, like I still have three closets worth of clothing, you know? So, yeah. um, so that was part of it, but yeah, for sure. Um, there's definitely an element of loss. I think even in, even in the headspace I'm in now around all of it. Right. Like there's still like an attachment and that this also speaks to my personality as somebody who like values stuff. I don't love that, but it's true. So yeah, I love your vulnerability. Um, and so that's also kind of part of like, you know, getting rid of things yeah. in general. When feelings came up, were you able to like identify them? Were they feelings that you like felt in your body? I think I um, intellectualized it because this okay. is what I do. Okay. So I, <laughs> so I didn't, um, in the moment of getting rid of it, my thought was, I'm now going to have space for the things that I've recently bought that I don't have space for. That's great. Yeah. Um, and somebody will enjoy, I'm going to like sell these and somebody will, I will make some money and somebody. So I was trying to like frame the positive of yeah. what was going to come from it as opposed yeah. to the, oh, well, I only got to wear this twice and no, it's too small or, you know, whatever right. the thing right, was. Right, 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 right. Um, to just let that go and not give it a That's lot a of good, space. That's a good, I really like that shift. Yeah. That frame, like, it's okay. I got new stuff. It's going to be fun. It's okay. And I've also done this before where if there are things that I don't wear very often or like I can't wear anymore for one reason or another, I'll move it to a different part of my closet. Mm-hmm. For some reason that like helps me detach from it, I guess. Like if okay. it's not right in front of me, like I keep the things I wear all the time kind of right in front of me in right. my closet. Yeah. And so I move that to kind of a, this is like the holding section for, you know, if I want to try wearing it another time and then decide, oh no, for real, this needs to go or. Right. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I do. I have several holding sections <laughs> in my room. Uh-huh. They are um, the couch. <laughs> And a couple places on the floor mm-hmm. that I love to hold things. Just just a couple. Just about four. Just four about piles. A few piles. Yeah. 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 I have to say I'm pretty good about not doing that. Um because I like the order and organization of a closet. So I Yeah. But yeah. Uh same by the way. Love oh, order, mm-hmm. love organization. Uh, can't seem to get it to happen for sure, me. Sure, sure. Um, I find that good hangers help. Yep, got them. Flocked. Flocked hangers changed my life. Oh, I don't know what that means. Flocked is like the velvet color. Co- flocked is like the velvet covered Oh, hangers. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're that's called what flocked. you use. Yeah, yeah, that's what I use. They're just really thin so that you can fit more in your closet uh-huh. and you don't have like the bulk. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Something that I have realized Mm -hmm. is if I hold on, which I am also in a season of needing some bigger clothes and switching things out. And this totally makes sense when I say it out loud and you're going to be like, yeah, well, of course. But I hadn't really put it together until it happened to me. I have this pair of jeans that I really, really like, Mm -hmm. and they fit me everywhere but the stomach. Mm -hmm. They're too small in the stomach area. (sighs) They're great on the butt and the legs. Yeah. And... <clears throat> so when I wear them, I, I try, I use like several hair ties. Do you know the trick of like the yeah. hair tie around the button and then you pull through? I try to use several hair ties and link them up to uh-huh. hold them closed. Okay. I do not recommend this. This is not a life hack because I'm uncomfortable the whole time I'm wearing them. Sure. And guess what that does? It brings up all of my beliefs about how my size is um, not good, that I am too big. Mm. And so even if you think that you've dealt with those things and have responses or tools with that, if you put yourself in uncomfortable clothes, your body starts speaking out, you know? It's like, I'm not comfortable in this. And then my brain goes back to this these old thoughts and these old beliefs yeah totally so like if i can have clothes that fit where that opportunity does not come up i think that's great yeah i hear you yeah for sure for sure 
If you are cleaning out your closet, sometimes Tonight, it's helpful. I'll be cleaning out my closet. What is that from? Eminem. Go ahead. Oh, that must be a callback. Um, if you are <laughs> no, what's the last thing? If you <laughs> if you are starting the new year off in some way, like cleaning your closet out as well, decluttering or something, I don't know. Maybe you're just about to go through that because you're ready to do something like that. Uh, let it take whatever time it needs to take. Yeah. That's all. And give yourself all the all the grace and all the love in the midst of it. In this episode, our guest is Drews Kukoy, a refugee and activist in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a great interview. And we want you to take good care of yourself. We will be discussing diet culture. We'll be discussing capitalism. We touch on war a little bit. So those things might be triggering, and take good care of yourself. And as always, this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. We are not experts. So enjoy the show, but don't necessarily always take our advice. <laughs> and now it's time for Shut the Fuck Up where we talk about examples of diet culture in pop culture. And do we have a doozy for you today? <laughs> a doozy. Okay. The irrelevant Jillian Michaels is <laughs> trying to make some more money off the um, pain and suffering and trauma of fat people. Um, and she is out here trying to sell something. I don't know what it is. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you anyways. And and she had some things to say about Lizzo. She actually had a lot of really nonsensical things to say. But the thing that has really caught on (laughs) is the thing she said about Lizzo. I want to say to you, if you have not watched the 16-minute, yes, I said 16-minute I guess we're going to call it an interview Um, (laughs) with her where all this came from. Don't just don't. I Um, haven't. Megan has not. I did watch the whole thing. It made me very angry and sad all at the same time. So, (laughs) so don't put yourself through it unless you're like me and you just like have to know and you can't not know. Um, But I watched it and we're going to talk about it. Here's the deal. I think this audience is pretty aware of kind of our love for Lizzo, our love for Lizzo (laughs) and how problematic Jillian's statements are. So I don't necessarily want to talk a lot about that. Um, What I do want to note are a couple, a couple things that came up in the interview. Okay. Cause if we talked about all the things that came up, we'd be here. That's a whole other episode. It's a whole shut the fuck episode by itself. (laughs) But basically, here's what we know. Um, Your fat friend, Y-R, fat, F-A-T, friend, F-R-I-E-N-D, on Instagram has posted a great, um, I guess you'd call it summary, of uh, of specific instances, site-specific instances, where Jillian Michaels has been abusive and fatphobic in her career. Um, so go, go check that one out. We'll link it down below that specific post. Um, if you are still uncertain about how problematic Jillian Michaels is, um, but you can see there's been a history of this forever. She makes her money off of being fat phobic. The other thing about the entirety of the interview that I found fascinating was how angry and defensive and condescending she was from the moment it started till the moment it ended. It just got worse and worse. There was no like pleasantry of like, yeah, great. I mean, it was like not she she wasn't like sitting. It was a BuzzFeed interview. Can we just like it was BuzzFeed. She went in front of Barbara Walters. All right. Um, (laughs) And also. Is anybody shocked that this happened moments before the new Biggest Loser premieres, the worst show on television? Is anybody shocked? 
Ugh. Right. That was my reference for her. Well, like when I heard Jillian Michaels, I thought, okay, she was a trainer on The Biggest Loser, a show that was basically a torture camp for fat people. And has harmed more most of the people yeah, who spread spread terrible beliefs and myths. And I don't use the term torture lightly. Mm. Yeah, I'm not using that flippantly. It is torture. And it is extremely harmful for mental and physical health. Yeah. You can just – and there are studies on this. Just Google Biggest Losers studies uh, and you can find out how harmful that program is for anyone. And Rebecca Scritchfield uh, has become good friends with a prior contestant and they have a good part of uh, a kind of a series on her podcast is them talking about all of that and kind of working through the harm. After I watched the video, I was just scrolling through the comments just to see if anyone was saying anything negative about what Jillian was saying. And of course, no, the trolls of um, the internet were all like, yeah, she's right. Blah, blah, blah. You know, they were all whatever. Yeah. But I did see one comment. It was very concise. Um, it didn't even use words. It used a single emoji. Um, and that emoji was of a trash can. <laughs> It made me laugh so hard. It was great. So here's the deal. We've talked about before how like we have a lot of compassion for people that are still entrenched in diet culture uh, because we understand what it's like to want to gain more privilege in Mm -hmm. our culture. Yes. And as fat people, we don't have that privilege. There are a lot of privileges that we don't have as well as uh, their systemic oppression. Jillian Michaels is a thin woman, and I'm sure she's come across criticisms of her work. So she's not ignorant to the harm she's done. I don't have space for it. No. I don't have compassion for it. Mm -mm. When you literally want to take my personhood away, I'm done. Right. And I, although I didn't watch the clip, or I actually what I what I watched was a really hilarious hilarious remix of like it was like a three minute long summary of how wildly she contradicted herself throughout the interview, and something that I did hear her say was quote unquote glorifying obesity, Mm. which is basically just fat phobia bingo, right? Mm. Like these are terms. That actually I think we should maybe play that game on one of our episodes. Like these are terms that we hear thrown around and they are fear-mongering and just little, you know, ways to make you very scared of the O word. And I'm sorry that I said the O word on the podcast, but I was quoting it. Yeah. I think um, the other thing that was really interesting to me was that – well, one – the interviewer asked her if she talks about body positivity in her home. Some yeah. I only watched it once. I'm not it's not worth it to me to go back and get the exact <laughs> wording right of what the interviewer asked. But basically yeah. it was something around how do you talk about this at home with your children? Because yeah. Jillian and her um I guess um, wife or her significant other have uh, at least two children together. And um her answer was we don't have to. <laughs> yeah. and I was like oh well if you don't have to then you are talking about it but in a negative way yeah. so okay. you know what that makes me think of and I, I definitely want to be clear that being fat and being black are not the same thing but it makes me think of people that are like no 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 we're in a post-racial society we yeah color doesn't exist yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like and that's that is racism and that is fat phobia right right Yeah. And the other thing that was so was when she got really worked up because she could clearly not come up with like actual answers. And in my experience, when people's defensiveness grows, it's one of two reasons. It's either they know that they're wrong, but they're still going to they don't want to be they still going to they're going to double down on it. and They're going to fight back even harder because they think if they get louder and bigger that you'll back down. Yeah. Or. They truly believe that they're right, but they have nothing to back it up. So they're kind of the same thing, but you know what I mean. So what was so interesting was in her talking about like how she can speak and like how she knows these things as facts. The Uh two of the comments she made 
was that one, she is a best-selling author, as if like that's that makes you an expert. Mm-hmm. People buy a lot of shit about a lot of things that ain't real and ain't truthful. So there's a lot. Just like FYI, there's a lot of flat earthers out there, and there are like Donald I mean, Trump is a best-selling author. <laughs> Many of the Real Housewives are best-selling authors. These are not people to take advice from. Right. <laughs> it's like unreal. And you can literally buy yourself on to a lot of bestsellers. Like there's a lot out there. So, okay. That's not a qualification. It's not list. a qualification to be an expert. And one thing she said was that she is a certified nutritionist. Uh, that's not a thing, right? And I would just like to remind us all. That it doesn't take, you can be a nutritionist, as we learned with Jen and Ander, you can be a nutritionist and have a lot of training, but you don't have to. You can call yourself a nutritionist with no training, is that correct? I'm not sure if it's no training. I think there's like a three-week course you can take to call yourself a nutritionist. I don't know. But it's not the same as being a registered dietitian who has clinicals and like practice and, okay, years and years of study. So that doesn't mean much of anything to me. Show me your what your certification comes from. What kind of education yeah. you have. Don't just say, you know, Even that's then, not though, enough. Even then, though, we know that these, like, the educational institutions are still fat phobic. Right. But I see what you're saying. Like, she literally doesn't have credentials. And let's talk about the anti-black sentiments. <sighs> Because the interviewer did bring Lizzo up, but Lizzo was not the only person that the really? interviewer brought up. Really? I don't even... Again, because I won't go back and listen. Yeah. I'm not going to go back yeah, and yeah, do it yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. But wasn't the only person. This wasn't just diet culture and fat phobia. This was white supremacy. And I know that her... And I know she wanted and made a point to bring up that her daughter likes Lizzo. And I guess her daughter is black. Yes. So, you know, there are a lot of arguments where like, oh, but I have black friends or like, but I have an adopted black son or daughter. This doesn't mean that you can't also be racist and have anti-black sentiments. Right, right. And like, has she ever said anything about Adele when Adele was living in a bigger body? Right, exactly. So this one's tough. They came for our they came for our Lizzo. They came for Lizzo. And I'm just here to tell you that and it was a white woman who came for Lizzo. So like I am not here for one second of this nonsense. No. And so here's the deal. Jillian Michaels, you need you don't just need to shut the fuck up. You need to go away. This is not your industry is dying for what you think it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And we're not here for it and the world is changing and you need to either get on board or get off the boat. You need to go away. Yeah. You need to take several seats. Several. And then even if you think yourself. you only need one because you're so fat and thin. Oh, you need to take so several. Tiny. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boo. And just like maybe go to therapy. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Novel idea. Thought. Okay, so here's my favorite thing about this whole situation. Tell but me. While, while Jillian Michaels is touting her nonsense around town, and while she is uh, double doubling down on what she said, this is what Lizzo was doing on social media. She was thanking God for her five Image Award nominations that <laughs> she got. <laughs> On her way to do morning television and um, shows where she's currently touring in Australia. But she did um, clap back, we'll say. It was harder than a clap back, so I'm not exactly sure the right terminology to be used around this. <laughs> but, um, she, I'm sure you saw it. Uh, if you didn't. It was in her Instagram stories. It was stories. in her Instagram stories. <laughs> she didn't she didn't call out any name Mm-mm, she, sure she just gave a quote she just and it was everything that needed to be said it was 15 seconds of everything that needed to be said and don't worry it's hidden in this episode somewhere it is hidden in this episode and Listen then and quote. she's in bed when she does it i mean she's just like hanging out in her bed unbothered she's unbothered like unbothered jillian michaels shut the, the fuck, fuck up, up. Shut the fuck up, Jillian Michaels.
This episode is brought to you by Weighted Blankets, a.k.a. Thunder Shirts for People. Nasal Spray. Meal prep subscriptions whose meals taste good because they don't cater to diet culture. Cough Drops that taste like candy. And our new favorite Lizzo quote. If my name is in your mouth, so is my bitch. Enjoy the flavor. <laughs> Ooh. So good. We All right. love her. We love her. We love her. Today, we are so excited for our interview. We have Drewst Kakoy as our guest. Drewst, welcome. Thank you. Hello, ladies. Hello. We're so excited for you to be here. <laughs> we both met Drewst through Imaginarium, yeah. which is a community we've talked about before. Um, you were speaking on a panel, mm-hmm. and we were like, oh. Speak more. Speak more. <laughs> Come speak with us. Yes. That's for the exactly people. right. Yeah. We want to start with your early life. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of where you grew up and how you ended up here. Sure. So uh, I was born in um, Pawa, which is a region of Irani-occupied Kurdistan. My family is originally Kurdish from Iraqi-occupied Kurdistan, Mm. but I wasn't born in the same area as my family because of war. So we were literally refugees when I was born. And then in the first like five years, well, actually when we were in Pawa, my dad had a um, bakery and it was named after my sister. Her name is Drood, very similar to Drews. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they sold like cakes and baklava and like all that sort of stuff. Right. So that was kind of one of the roots that was already very deep in our family of my mom's sweets are the talk of the town, no matter what town we're in. Even now in Nashville, talk of this town, baby. So um, that was like something significant there. And then um, when I was about five years old is when we actually had to leave Kurdistan and we were brought to the United States as refugees of war. Um, We were kept as refugees in, in refugee camps in Guam for about three or four months before we were actually allowed to enter the United States just so that paperwork and all that sort of stuff could be filed and processed and everything. And so um, that was until I was five. And then we were brought over and originally resettled in Phoenix, Arizona. Hmm. And we Did lived in Phoenix. Did you have a Did your parents have any choice about that? So the way that works is basically, at least at that time, refugee resettlement was done every four years. Like it would be a quadrant of the United States, right? So it would be hmm. when it was... In our time, in 96, it was um, the southwest, um, mm-hmm. right? And then it was northwest, and then it was northeast, and then it was southeast. Gotcha. So, like, when it was our time, that's why it was Phoenix. So, like, a lot of people who were resettled in the same time that we were were either brought to Phoenix or brought to... There's a large Kurdish community in San Diego. Oh, okay. There's some in San Francisco. There's, like, the tiniest community in New Mexico, um, but right before us, when there were two different rounds of refugee resettlement in um, 91 and 93 was when it was southeast. Mm-hmm. And so that's why there's a large Kurdish community here in Nashville mm-hmm. was because in 91 and 93, a lot of the Kurds were resettled either in Nashville or in Athens and Jacksonville, Florida, a lot of those areas and just kind of congregated. Most of them congregated to Nashville. And so for us, when we came here in 96... We were taken to Phoenix, Arizona for about 10 months is when how long we stayed there. And then just through the grapevine of buying phone cards and calling back home and people back home being like, oh, you're in America? So-and-so's son is in America and he's in this town called Nashville. So-and-so's daughter is in America wow. and she's in this town called Nashville. 
and this is a 96. So you're not just like, oh, I know Nashville. I'm going to Google it. Yeah, right. You're like, okay, let me go find this map at the library <laughs> right. and find where Nashville is. Oh, it's like a 30-hour ride to get to Nashville. Yeah. So um, through all of that, um, we finally actually moved to Nashville in 97, and we've been in Nashville ever since. Wow. Yeah. And Nashville is actually known as Little Kurdistan USA. It has the largest Kurdish community in the nation with about, some will say 12,000, some will say 15,000, some will say 30,000. Wow. And honestly, I will believe any of those numbers. <laughs> Why? Because, wildly different. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes you look and you're like, there's not that many of us. And sometimes there will be like a New Year party that we have. And there's so many and people are coming from every corner of the city yeah. being like, we've been here for this many years. So wow, yeah, I don't know how many of us there are, but there's just the most. And if any other city says they're the most, they're lying. They're we, wrong. They're not Little Kurdistan. <laughs> we are. We are. <laughs> I love so that great. pride. Yeah. Yes. How many years then were you in a refugee camp? So we were in a refugee camp first when we originally were evacuated from Kurdistan, mm -hmm. we were taken to the camps in Slopi, which is the name of a city in Turkey-occupied Kurdistan. And we stayed there for like maybe three or four weeks. And then we were taken to Guam, which is literally a U.S. naval base. And we stayed there for about four months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So relative to other folks, not as long necessarily, you were able to to kind of move through the system or was that kind of an average time frame of how long yeah, people so were staying in the camps? My family was actually really fortunate in that because, well, fortunate is as fortunate as a refugee can be. Yeah. That, right. um, we were a part of uh, an operation that was literally by the U S military called operation brain drain that Wait, they brain operation drain? brain drain, okay. where the mission of the United States was to relocate any of the more educated or skilled workers that were amongst these people uh, that they have identified as refugees in Northern Iraq. Right. So like, if you look at the documentation, it's never even referred to as Kurds. We're always referred to as the people in Northern Iraq in the uh, Kurdistan region. Interesting. And so uh, is, because is it, Kurds, is that like, go ahead. Oh, you're fine. So like Kurds, we are not, there isn't a country of Kurdistan. Right. We, by the countries that occupy us, are seen as the defiant ones. We are seen as the ones that are outliers, that we won't just accept these lines that were basically drawn over us with the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1914 with the colonization of the Middle East, right? Mm. When Great Britain and France and Germany all came in and they kind of drew the lines that they wanted, Kurds were not accounted for. And that was a political decision. It wasn't just, oh, you weren't at the table. Right. That was that was a decision to later be able to come back through and destabilize the region whenever you want to. And that's kind of what you're seeing now. And even in the 1990s, that whole Operation Brain Drain came in as a way of being like, well, of course we want to help these refugees, but how are these help refugees going to help us? Oh. Right? So like, for example, my parents, my dad was a veterinarian back home. <laughs> We came here and he went back, right back to school. He was a veterinarian for a long time at Vanderbilt University as well. Um, my, my mom was a physical science teacher and an English teacher. And so they were both college educated. They both spoke Kurdish as well as Arabic, as well as as much English as you would need to finish a college degree mm -hmm. in that time. And so that was considered an asset that they had, mm -hmm. that had that been taken away from that region, it's easier to destabilize that region. And so that's basically why for us, we didn't stay in the camps for like years like a lot of people did we were stayed mm. kept in the camps for significantly a shorter amount of time yeah. and we were processed much quicker we were kept in guam instead of slopi where guam is you're surrounded by u.s military versus slopi you're surrounded by war you know mm. different all disgusting all different yes. sides of war yes. but very different right. danger levels right, right? Oh, wow. and so even that is like giving status to what is all in all a horrible situation. Right. Yeah. So while you were in the camps, um, what I want to know kind of what the food situation was like there, like um, particularly being in Guam versus um, Soki. Is that how you're saying it? Slopi. Slopi. S-I-L-O-P-I. Okay, Slopi. Um, particularly from the difference maybe between Guam and Slopi. So in Slopi, there were literally daily rations that depending on how many people 
were in your family, you would receive, right? So if it was a family of two, you'd get this much. If it was a family of four, up to four, you'd get this much. If it was a family of up to eight, you'd get this much. And that was kind of how it was said. It wasn't like a per head thing, Mm -hmm. right? And so that created, that kind of forced community within all the people that were kept in literal tents together where my family, there was five of us. And so there's two, there's four, there's eight. We're not eight, but we're also not four, but we're only accounted as four, right? Mm. There was a family beside us and there was 10 of them and they're accounted as eight. Mm. And we're given one tent and they're given the same exact size tent, right? Mm. And so you kind of, instead of just taking what you're given and leaving it at that, especially in just the way that I don't know. I can't say this is specific to Kurds, but Kurds are a very communal people that nothing is really yours. Mm. Everything is ours. Right. Mm. And so you receive what you're getting and then everybody comes home and puts it all together. Mm. And then like you'll make something out of all of this bread or they they would give us like little tuna packets and we'd never had that before. So that wasn't even considered food for us. We would just kind of leave that right and so i don't really remember what else i remember they would give us like slices of cheese like american like the yellow cheese which Mm -hmm. again never seen it before i didn't need it my mom would be like eat it it's fine like it's gonna do this for you it's gonna do that for you we'd get milk we'd get water and that'd be pretty much about it did they give you meat I don't remember. And yeah, if they did, done. it was canned. And, and so it's not halal, never right? had it before. Yeah, exactly. And so we'd never had it. But we'd never seen canned meat before. We'd right. never tasted it. And yeah. even in that time of desperation, you're like, well, I have the bread. Yeah. I have the cheese. I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm not trying to get sick. Right. I don't know where a hospital is. I don't know yeah. what this weather is going to be. I'm not going to put these strange things into my body or my children's bodies. Yep. And then just kind of guess what's going to happen to them. Yeah. No, we wouldn't do any of that. So we'd get like literally like the long French rolls or Mm -hmm. French uh, baguettes. We'd get like one of those French baguettes and then we'd get like slices of cheese and stuff. That's what I remember eating. I don't know what else we would get. I know we'd also get milk and we'd like boil the milk and that was like the best thing in the world was that hot milk. It was so good. Mm. (laughs) And um, like we'd like savor this this little cup of milk. My sister and I would just sit there and savor this little cup of milk. And then in Guam... You were, we were, we weren't in like literal tents. We were in houses and it was like shared housing. Right. And so all of us, um, my whole family, there's five of us, we were in a room and in the house that we stayed in, there was five rooms. So there was five different families. And then depending on each, each house, you were, um, given rations for, um, every other week, basically. So twice a month you'd get these rations. For the entire house. Yeah, for the entire house for those two weeks. And so this was the story that I was telling you earlier was um, even back home before like we ever left Kurdistan, my mom would make yogurt. And even now, like if you open our fridge at home, you open it up and we have homemade yogurt. And so while we were there, my mom took some of the a filling in the bread in the French baguette and she poured some milk onto it and she just kind of left it until the yeast kind of like it it cultured a little bit. And then she boiled that with like a small glass of milk. And then she left that glass of milk that it started to fermentate. And then she took a little bit of that and put it in more boiled milk. And then that became yogurt. The next time that it cooled down, it became yogurt. Wow. And then like all the communities, all the houses around us heard that like we have yogurt. And the good thing about yogurt is you just need a little bit to start the culturing process, right? Right. And so now you have this big pot of yogurt and you can give everybody around you a little cup and now they can make their own. All they have to do is boil their milk, let it cool off, add this little bit into it and it'll... Leave it for like, at this point now, you can just like leave it for like three or four hours in a warm place where it doesn't move yeah. and it'll culture into yogurt on its own. Wow. And so that was something that like we had first that nobody else yes. had. And it was so good. That was a snack that like when I was younger, before we ever left Kurdistan, I would come home from like daycare because I never went to school back home. I was never old enough. Mm-hmm. So I'd come home from daycare or it was pre-K, I guess. 
and I would take a cup, uh, a little bowl of that yogurt and I would put some sugar on top and I'd sit in front of cartoons and I'd eat that yogurt and it was so good. So to be in Guam and like finally have a little piece yeah. of home, yeah. it was the best snack yeah. ever. It was like, yeah. this is the best thing. I don't want ice cream. I don't want chips. This is what I want right yogurt here. with sugar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it sounds like that was a way in a, in a place where you had little to no control over what your food was, what where you had to be, what you could do to have some real ownership over, you know, what you were given. I mean, that's, that's so resourceful and wonderful. I'm like, I, you yeah. know what I mean? It's such yeah. a great um, representation of how to yeah. kind of create that kind of community in such a hard place. Yeah. 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 Everything is very fixed and everything was very foreign, right? Right. Yeah. Nothing is anything that we'd ever seen before. Of course, we've had bread before, but right. we have like the lavash bread. We don't have these like baguettes. Even the cheese is different. Even the meat was different. The rice was different. And so to finally have something that even smelled like home was was a game changer in creating our own space of comfort, regardless of what our surroundings were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering about, um, in and this can be through the lens of your family, your culture, your religion, your... Um, economic, like any, any sort of lens, um, what sort of messages you got about size mm-hmm. and what sizes were okay and what weren't. And then also I know a big part of Christian culture is modesty, modesty culture. And I think that's a part of Muslim cu- culture as well. Absolutely. And how did that sort of play in to, um, beliefs or, um, beliefs about body image? So for your first question with size, I think because we were brought here as refugees, a lot of things were kind of more so celebrated than anything. That like if we are gaining weight and if Mm. we are eating more, then it's a good thing. It's because we haven't been able to for so long, right? Like whether that was true or not, that's how it was projected onto us of like, now they're finally comfortable and now they're finally holding weight. Now they're yeah. finally this, this, and that, right? They're, they're provided for enough. And mm-hmm. so that was at least initially what, what you're seeing, what we're seeing as, as being projected onto us around size and how yeah. much we're eating and what food is being brought around us and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then um, your question with modesty with, the Muslim faith. So within Islam, there are very clear guidelines to what modesty is. And it is uh, binary based of male and female, right? So once you hit the age of puberty, then for women, you are supposed to then cover with hijab. Mm -hmm. Supposed to is the terminology within the Quran. Then that supposed to is within yourself. Nobody can tell you Mm -hmm. this is what you're supposed to do. It's God telling you this is what you're supposed to do. And then you make the decision whether you will or will not. I see. That's within Islam. Muslims, depending on what culture you're a part of, what region of the world you're being raised around, that supposed to can be much more firm-handed and much more idiocratic and pushed by a government and pushed by a family and pushed by everything around you. And then depending on what region of the world you're in, it's more so just an individual basis, right? And so we have that across the world where there are countries like Iran where as soon as you even look grown enough, if you look like a grown woman, then in public, women have to be covered. Mm. And for men, the idea of modesty is basically, so it's called aura is the Arabic word for it. And aura for men is everything... Um, so they have to cover from below their knees to their belly button is what is like the no-no zone, right? And then everything else is fine and just whatever's appropriate societally based on whatever position you're in, right? And then for women, that same aura is everything but your face, your hands. And some scholars will um, debate your feet. And then if you're a breastfeeding woman, your mm. breasts. So that's kind oh, of so the line. It can be. Yeah. So everything but. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you're for a woman, if you are perceived as a woman, it doesn't matter yes. how you identify, I right? See. That's yes. not Islam or Muslims are very archaic in, in all of that, where it's binary, it's very clear, man, woman, there's no question about right. it. 
that's how most Muslims um, function. And so if you are perceived to be a woman, everything except for your face, your hands, some scholars will argue your feet. And if you're a breastfeeding woman, your breasts has to be covered. Wow. Yeah. And so that's what modesty is. That's what, that's what the way that you are presentable Mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And so depending on what culture you're from, that may mean a long piece of cloth from head to toe. Right. That may mean a skirt and a jacket. That may mean pants. That may mean whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and then just individually, which is what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be something that even within the faith, even within Islam, it's, stated that if you were doing it for any other purpose than to praise God, than to please God, then you're not really getting the full credit for it from God Mm. because you're doing it for a worldly purpose. You're not doing it for this divine being. You're doing it for something to either save you or, or help you from something within the world. Right. And so if you're covering because your dad is forcing you to, that's its own sacrifice, but it's not the same as deciding to cover. Right. And so that's kind of the way that modesty is within Islam. So growing up, you have a brother and a sister, right? Mm -hmm. Were you treated differently? And if so, how did that play out in the lens of diet culture? My parents will swear that they tried their best. And I believe that they tried their best to not have that double standard in the house. Where even within the way that the faith is practiced, there is a double standard written in. Even within the way that our culture is, there's a double standard written in. Mm-hmm. And they tried their best to not have it that way. But of course, it's ingrained in them. That's the way that they were raised. Yeah. Even for my mom, there were certain things that she was appalled by me asking to do because she was like, you're a girl. Like, these aren't things you ask to do. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, well, my brother does it. And she'd be like, well, that's your brother. So there was a clear difference in just the amount of freedom and autonomy that my brother had and, and not being asked like where he's spending money or where he's spending Mm -hmm. his time or who he's spending his time with versus my sister and I, it was just expected that we're more in the house that when we go out until, until after, even after we were 18, when we would, the only times that we would just kind of leave the house on our own would be for aid We'd get to like go to the mall with our friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And maybe for our birthdays, we'd get to have our friends come over to our house and my mom would just stay away from us. Otherwise, the only times we would really socialize would be like with other community families and we'd be all together. And there was never a question of like, oh, y'all are going to this person's house. I don't want to come. Well, what are you going to do? You're not going to stay home alone. Right. But my brother's mm. off doing his own thing. Nobody's really asking him any questions. Uh. But the excuse was, he's the oldest. Mm. So he's six years older than me. Four year, uh, He's two years older than my sister. And so he's the oldest. So, of course, he's going to have more freedom. He got his license the first one. He was the first to get his license. He was the first to get his own job. First to get his own car. And so there was already that that my parents could kind of like rest on of like well he just has more access to things that you don't not recognizing that it's because he's a boy and Mm -hmm. it's because we're girls Mm -hmm. that they're not letting us do the same things but then even with my sister there was a clear difference in the way that we were treated where my mom always just kind of treated me like a little boy (laughs) where she never really and that's because I was bigger she never really saw me as somebody who She had to be worried about like people looking at in a certain way versus my sister who was, she's four years older than me and she was thinner. So she hit puberty before I did and she was taller and she's lighter and she has light eyes. Lighter skin. Lighter skin. That's a a lot of politics there, right? Of course. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, so I mean, she also started to cover before I did and that just kind of like identifies her as like, oh, she's older. She's, there's more eyes on her for that. And just just physical body wise, she's more so the quote unquote attractive body. And so my mom recognized that and she would always have these talks with my sister about like being careful about what she wears or who she's talking to or where she goes and that sort of stuff. Versus for me, I would be outside playing with like the neighborhood kids all day and there would be no problem because I'm outside playing soccer or I'm like, you know, just like 
I can play it in the yard. I just can't play in like an actual team. Or I can play hopscotch. Or there was literally a wrestling like tournament at one point that we ran in my backyard. And I made like a, a sumo wrestling ring out of the hose. And I was the referee. And we had a whole bracket system with all the kids in the neighborhood. And my mom would have never known about it. Because she was like, as long as you're in the yard, I don't care what you're doing. I just wasn't allowed out of the yard. So I'd bring everybody into my yard. <laughs> and then we just do the the yard. <laughs> literally wrestling each other while I was the, I the mean, referee. I that's incredible. Thank you. Thank that's you. fantastic. It was a lot What of an fun. organizer. Early, <laughs> early so community organizing. <laughs> yeah. It was so much fun. But that was kind of her main thing of just like, I want to control where you are. What you're doing, it's not really my problem. Right. There was never any question about like, yeah. oh, somebody's going to come by and like see you in a certain way or, right. or sexualize me in yeah. a certain way or anything like that. So that's an interesting thin line that I'm wondering if you experienced as well of like, you have a bigger body, so you're going to jiggle more. And mm-hmm. we don't want that because that's tempting. Yeah. But also you're in a bigger body, so you're not as attractive. Yeah. It's, it's so like, I don't have to worry about it as much. Yeah. It's like. Uh, it's well, just, that's so it, my experience. I mean, you, Megan and I have talked about this. Like, that's how I felt about purity culture. It was like, well, I got this in the bag because I'm getting all these messages that being in a bigger body, I'm not. I'm not going to cause that problem that my friends with right. all the perfect curves, quote unquote, yeah. will, you know. So Right. Yeah. What would you say to someone that is scared of letting refugees into this country? How do you feel about that question? I can answer that question. Okay. Yeah. To somebody who is scared about letting refugees into the, the country... I would say your problem should be with the foreign policy of this nation and not with the people who are running from it. Because the only reason that people are seeking refuge in the literal pit of the empire is because we're assuming that the empire won't be so stupid as to strike itself. And so we're coming here to hide from the strikes of the empire. Mm. So that's, why refugees are going to places all over Europe, why predominant places all over Europe, places all over the United States. Because we're assuming that the places where the power is, the power isn't dumb enough to then strike within itself. We know that as long as we are home, home is targeted. Mm. So whether, and, and refugees, even the term immigrant versus refugee is politicized, when in reality, the umbrella is people running from war, yeah. whether from an Im- with an immigrant status that they were fortunate enough to have a college education and be considered good enough to apply for a visa to come to this country, whether they were considered a refugee and won some sort of lottery to be able to be given that title and then be gone through that paperwork process and be given a visa or whether they forego for went either of those decisions and decided to come and seek safety anyway. Mm -hmm. If you have a problem with those people, then your problem is with the foreign policy of your own home. Now, the second part of that is we run here assuming that the empire is, isn't so stupid as to strike itself. And then you come here and we see that the empire is literally rotting from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And you see how the empire is treating the black people that built the empire that it is, the natives and the indigenous of this country that were here before it was even in existence. Mm-hmm. And so you come here and you see that and we realize that, oh, the empire is dumb enough to strike itself and it is rotting from the inside out. And that's why it's literally trying to spread this rot so that at least it can still have dominance if it doesn't have power. It mm-hmm. still has dominance. Yeah. And so if you have a problem with the refugees, take it up with the people who uphold the foreign policies that say that the U.S. military is somehow protecting us by continuing to spread the empire. Mm. If you if you love if you love those troops, say to bring them home. If you love your country, keep your country intact. And then after all that, remember that this country 
is built on colonization and the mass murder of the indigenous people of the United States and then the slave labor of the Africans that were forcefully brought here. And nothing else has changed after that. It's only later multiplied who else that impacts. Yeah. And this is also not helpful to the people in power is I think the most important part to remember. That just because white people right now, not United Statesians, white people, right? It's not just people in the United States that uphold this power. Yeah, it's it's right. white people everywhere. It's white people in South America yeah. who have that privilege and who have that power. It's white people in the Middle East who have that privilege and who have that power. Mm -hmm. The predominant powers, of course, are here in the United States, are across Europe, but it's white people who think that by continuing to push this, this power and dominant narrative that they are somehow gaining and they are somehow going to have some long-lasting fulfillment that is only erasing their own humanity, that yeah. is only discounting themselves of an experience with the world and with the rest of their their humanity that they, they're neglecting of themselves. And until that is recognized that even, the empire is not even helpful to the people in power, that right. when it crumbles, they will be the first to fall. Mm. And they will be the first to feel it. So us fighting against the empire is out of love for everybody in humanity. It's not It's not just out of survival. Of course, survival is going to be what you first reach out for and what you first think to because human instinct. But when you start to think of a more collective base in, in community organizing and in uh, collective liberation, it's for everybody. It's for even the people in power. And it's to see them prosper in a way that they are not they don't think that they are the only ones and yeah. that if they don't get then nobody else can get yeah. we can all get capitalism teaches us that there is only a little bit of love there is only a little bit of happiness and they can be the only ones to get it but who was putting a limit on that there is no limit to love there is no limit to that happiness that power isn't going to give you whatever love that your parents did it or your country did it or whatever else did it. It's going to be in that collective liberation that we get that fulfillment. Where can we find you online? Are you speaking I at any panels upcoming? I'm not speaking on any panels soon. Um, I'm on Twitter. Mm -hmm. D-R-O-S-T-K. That's where I speak all my shit. Yeah. I'm on Instagram at D-R-O-S-T-K-O-K-O-Y-E. Drew Skokoy. Cool. If people do want to like book you for any speaking engagements, what's the best way to do that? I don't often get on my soapbox anymore. I just tweet about it now. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm a slacktivist now. <laughs> a slacktivist. slacktivist. That's the best thing I've heard today. No, it's not. Actually, all your stuff that you said earlier. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. And thank, thank you for you the so snack. Since our last episode's Fat Friendly Hall of Fame induction ceremony, Linda Bacon has changed their name to Lindo Bacon. So we would like to induct Lindo Bacon, author of Health at Every Size. Super fit hero. And our guest, Drust Kokoi. These are the people we've been waiting for. We are the people we've been waiting for. Kendra Joe. Megan Elizabeth. Nailed it. <laughs> what is I always forget. I know you like the the look on your face I was like, was I like mm, <laughs> you should just What's know your... that that's not that's not a take on like how good of a friend we are whether or not I remember your middle name. <laughs> mm, agree to disagree. <gasps> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm no, kidding. It's not. You know I'm it's kidding. Not. Don't say things like that about me, Megan. I'm very much anyway, kidding. Go ahead. What's your secret weapon? Okay. My secret weapon. Is that I have my 
checking account information, routing an account number, and my all the information of my debit card memorized. Me too! You're not supposed to say that. It's my secret weapon. I'm so sorry. I knew you were going to do that. I was very excited. It's very handy. Oh my gosh, it's so handy. I also, I always had like my mortgage account number memorized. I know I've sold my house since Oh, that's then. good. I've, I always keep those information. And also, I could tell you my childhood phone number, my two best friends' childhood phone numbers, mm, like all that You really stuff. remember things except I'm, for people's middle names. It's because I'm good with numbers. <laughs> if your middle name was two, I'd remember it. <laughs> However... If you want to do less online shopping, do not memorize your card number. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very effective way to uh, minimize online shopping. Megan, what's your secret weapon? Being good at technology. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lie from the pit of hell. Uh Uh-uh, don't be saying (laughs) things like that. Well, just now when we were looking up reviews, I told you how to find the reviews. You didn't. but I did. No, you didn't. And it's my secret weapon and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm very proficient at technology (laughs) and I never need help with it. And we know the secret weapon of the podcaster is ratings and reviews. We've been talking about it for a long time Mm -hmm. and I think it's working. Yeah. We would love for you to join our Patreon. It is at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash N-B-A-F-T. We have three tiers. Get on there, check it out, consider it. Uh, Lots of extra content that we think is good. We'd be so appreciative. And you don't even have to spell it out. You can click the link in below in the show notes or you can yep. click the link in our bio and get there too as well on instagram and instagram and again that handle is underscore nobody asked for this and we're on facebook all right we'll see all you right. next episode all right we love you bye bye